Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. You could use a buddy. Don't you want a pal? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Girl, the way I see it, your daddy should be leaving and you should stick around and kill him. What? Nothing. So Lydia, don't end yourself. Defend yourself. Daddy is the one you should maim. Together we'll exterminate. Assassinate! No! The finer points can wait, but first you gotta say my name. Go ahead and jump, but that won't stop him. Here you got a solid plan B option. I can bring your daddy so much pain. All you gotta do is say my name. Girl, just say it three times in a row. And you won't believe how far I'll go. I'm on the bench, but coach, just put me in the game. All you gotta do is say my name. I don't know your name. Well, I can't say it. How about a game of charades? Yes, let's play it. Two words. Right. Second word. Uh -huh. Drink. No. Beverage. No. Wine. No. Juice. Yes. Okay. First word. Okay. Bug. No. Ant. Close, but no. Beetle. Yes. Beetle juice. Wow, I'm impressed. And all you gotta do is say my name three times. Three times in a row. It must be spoken unbroken. Ready? Yeah. Okay, go. Beetle juice. Yes. Beetle juice. Yes. Oh, wow, this is gonna be so good. Because what? You're so smart. Stand up, bro, I'll bring a badge off for let you know But I prefer my chances down below Beetlejuice, yes. Beetlejuice, yes. being young and yeah. doesn't mean that I'm an easy mark I put them in with piranhas that don't need a shark Yes, life sucks, but not that much Okay, Beetlejuice, yeah. Beetlejuice, be a Don Sparrow The lecture I'm offering you a full-time spectre Are you any good? You betcha, trust me, baby I just met you you wanna see dad suffer? I think I'd rather just jump off. No! I may be suicidal, but Beetlejuice, it's not as if I lost my mind. So, playing hardball, huh? You are tougher than you look. Just wanna make sure I know who I'm working with. Got any references? Lydia, there you are. Are you all right? A-Dog, B-Town, my old pal. Get away from her, Lydia. This is a dangerously unstable individual. <laughs> Beetlejuice is sexy. Beetlejuice is smart. BJ is a graduate of Juilliard. He can help. We found him on Yelp. Our troubles all landed on the day that we befriended him. Every word is the truth. Welcome to this episode of Stages, everybody. Um, we just listened to Say My Name from the original Broadway cast recording of Beetlejuice featuring Sophia and Caruso, Alex Brightman, Kerry Butler and Rob McClure and written by my very brilliant guest today. Now, in the same vein as the song, I'm going to try an audio joke, uh, which might work for your ears, but uh, let's see how we go if I say... Eddie Perfect, Eddie Perfect, Eddie Perfect. 
Bizarre. I appear. I You're appear. A... It works. <laughs> it works. So, sorry, that, that was pretty pathetic, wasn't it? <laughs> I it was good. I, it worked. So, you well, know, what do you want? Well, it's a, it's a great way to start uh, start the conversation off by talking about your name. Are you an Edward or an Edmund or are you just an Eddie? I'm an Edmund. I'm an Edmund, um, but I moved away from Edmund to Eddie pretty early because I thought Edmund sounded pretty stuffy, um, didn't feel right. And also, I think he was the greedy Judas character in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe who sold out his mates for Turkish Delight. And I'm not a big fan of Turkish Delight or Judas. <laughs> uh, he's also, he's the bastard son in King Lear too. He's the bastard son. I think I was named after Edmund Hillary. Oh, so, that's, um, not that's not a bad Edmund to, uh, to be named after. Yeah, he climbed up a he climbed up a very large mountain. Some would say the largest, until proven otherwise. Now, yeah. did you think your name would ever be attached to an original Broadway cast recording as composer, lyricist? Um, n- well, not for a very no, no. The, the for most of my life, I would say no. For most of my life, I I couldn't even have conceived of it being a possibility because for most of my life, I didn't, you know, I didn't write music for musicals um i was very i liked musicals um i liked them a lot and um um i've always been a fan of the form and i and i got into performing musicals a little later on but writing musicals like writing um uh, composing music and lyrics for the stage was something that sort of took off in my brain when i went to the west australian academy of performing arts and i was studying musical theater and that was uh, I was 20, um, 21 when I started that course. So, yeah, I came to composing really late, but I've always played music and I've always enjoyed music. It just didn't occur to me that um, it was something that I could make a living out of performing and certainly not writing that. That um, had not occurred to me. But I, um, I had been consuming it pretty closely. So without knowing it, I was sort of filling up the tank. Well, Beetlejuice, of course, has fabulous source material with Tim Burton's film, Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Alex Baldwin. Were you a fan of the film? Had you seen it before or heard of it when it came on? Oh, yeah, radar? it was a big cult film. Yeah, I mean, I was a little kid. Um, uh, when, when did it come out? 88? Yep. I think. So I was 11 years old, and so I don't know if I was allowed to even watch it, but I somehow managed to watch it, probably on a VHS tape. And like most, you know, people of my generation, um, I'd never really kind of seen anything like that before. So it made a big impression on me visually. But I must say that when the um, when I knew that Beetlejuice was floating around in development with Warner Brothers theatricals without any composer lyricist attached to it yet, I hadn't seen the film since I was like really young, obviously, and. Um, um, my memory of it was really different to the reality of it. Going back and watching it, you know, as a as a grown up, and um, I had a very different experience of it. I still loved it, but it's it's um odd. It's an odd film. There's no getting around it. Like it's sort of sort of a little plotless. It sort of doesn't really explain its rules. It doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Sort of it's sort of gothic and macabre and lumbers from sort of one setup to another. 
Um, but I instantly knew that, I mean, um, I, I knew that I wanted to throw my hat in the ring for it because, well, firstly, because, you know, it was a, it was a job that was going on Broadway and I'd been going to New York, you know, every sort of three to six months, knocking on doors, taking meetings, feeling like I was getting sort of further and further away from the reality of ever being a writer in New York. Um, so it was a chance. Um, and also it was directed by, uh, it's going to be directed by Alex Timbers. And I'd just seen his um, production of Here Lies Love at the public, which I loved, um, which is um, a, a musical about Imelda Marcos uh, with a score by um, David Byrne and Fatboy Slim, which was quite an experience. Um, and then I went and saw um, Rocky at the same time at the Winter Garden Theatre, which was um which you know was really similar in the sense that it um it was a it was a they were both productions well he lies love has no fourth wall you sort of crammed in a room and shoved around by asms in um coveralls and the action happens around you behind you in front of you above you below you it's quite um quite immersive, immersive but it mm. in a but in a you know but not in any of the scary ways that that word suggests um and then Rocky was sort of similar. It was constantly breaking the fourth wall, pushing a boxing ring out into the auditorium, getting audience up on stage, you know, immersing the audience in the experience and really um, kind of reaching. It was a much more kind of um, conventional in its storytelling, but still had um, an incredible design and visual idea that was about um, the experience from the second you walked into the theatre before the show had even begun until you walked back out onto the street. But, you know, the, the show took care of you. It wanted to give you an experience. And I was so excited by his, by Alex's storytelling. Um, so I was like, well, this, this is going to be, you know, Beetlejuice in the hands of this guy is going to be absolutely something else. Um, the uh, film canon has been source material for a lot of the Broadway musicals, especially in recent years. You know, Tootsie, Mrs. Doubtfire, Pretty Woman. You talk about Rocky, Legally Blonde, and, and locally we had Dirty Dancing, An Officer and a Gentleman, Strictly Ballroom. Some work, some don't. It can't be easy taking a product that um, succeeds in one medium and finding uh, how it can function in another. Yeah, no, it's really... Um, adaptation has its huge challenges um and you know people bandy about these sort of platitudes about you know why some things have worked and why other things haven't i mean there were great liberties taken with the beetlejuice musical when it came to adapting it from the movie for, for a start by the time the script um i by the time i saw the script that had been in development for three and a half years and lydia was very much at the front and center it was a story about a you know a teenage girl who had lost her mother um it began at her funeral and her father was unwilling or uh incapable of discussing her mother's death and so she's sort of left alone and invisible in her grief and it's um you know beetlejuice is sort of the chaos that gets invited in the door in order to sort of smash everything apart so it can be put back together again that is very different from the film which is much more the sort of the maitland story in fact once we made it lydia's story it was quite difficult to keep finding reasons to have the Maitlands, you know that they were uh, they was they were people that characters that we sort of had to um, be really careful of, you know, over, you know, use them too much and you derail the A story, use them too little, and people were like, well, why are they in the show? Or, you know, this is too much, unlike the movie. So, um, 
it is a tricky thing to adapt from one source material to the other. But I think um, on Beetlejuice, we had great freedom and we also had great amount of time. Uh, from the time I came on to when it opened on Broadway, I think it was about four and a half years, nearly five years, a huge amount of development, a huge amount of cul-de-sacs that we wandered down, tried things that didn't work and um, and got rid of them and put new things, ideas in, huge amount of songs written and cut. Um, but we were always given the latitude from Warner Brothers that... Um, we could tell the story the way we wanted it to. And of course, no one was interested in, you know, ripping up the playbook and, um, you know, completely desecrating this movie. We wanted it to be something that Tim Burton would love that felt like it was an homage that could sit alongside it, the, the piece, but be its own piece, to be a companion piece, something that could run in parallel and even enhance the original film. Because, you know, with a musical, you are taking a, a movie to musical, you're taking moments that exist, you know, in like an instant on the screen and then you're exploding them into or imploding them into a character who then is going to go into a song and so you naturally then have to invent stuff they're going to start telling you what they're thinking how they're feeling what it is they want which they don't necessarily do in film so it's already going to be a very different beast um and you know i've worked on a few of these now I worked on Strictly Ballroom. I worked on, um, you know, to a degree, King Kong. Sort of, obviously, people are familiar with the the various film versions of that, and then, you know, Beetlejuice as well. That, you know, that um, there is a little bit of like, well, what does an audience expect? You know, there's a reason that people choose a title to adapt because people have a an association with that title. They like it. They, you know, they want to experience that universe in a in, in a musical way and so you kind of want to trash the film or you don't want to leave out things. You don't want to miss a trick that's important to put in there. You want to give stuff to the super fans, but then you also, you know, you, you, as they, as people keep saying, you can't just put the movie on stage. Well, well of course you can't do that. And, you know, once people are dancing and singing, it's different anyway. And in the film, we don't meet Beetlejuice until about halfway through, it seems. But, you know, with the musical, you you had him there front and centre from the very beginning, breaking the fourth wall in a sort of meta-theatrical device and um, delivering us the whole being dead thing where he acknowledged that we're, we're in a theatre. I mean, that was that was a genius idea, I thought. Well, thanks. That, that actually evolved over a long period of time. And that was one that was actually began as like a you know, not a not a mandate, but maybe a stipulation from the producers who were like, we want the show, to, it's Beetlejuice, it's the name is Beetlejuice, the character is Beetlejuice, uh, his name's on the marquee, we want the show to open with Beetlejuice. Whereas, you know, I, I mean, for a long time I was like, oh, really? Do we have to, like, put him, you know, how do you... How do you have any mystery or surprise if you just sort of, you know, well, we, put all your we, cards we, on the table or something? We don't meet Kong until towards the end of Act One, do we? Well, you know, that that was another one, you know, like the first preview, Kong didn't turn up for 45 minutes, you know, so there was a lot of, like, get to the fucking monkey, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, Beetlejuice opens the show and, you know, we went through it, we spun through a lot of um, different versions of that and then we had one version in Washington, D.C. where, you know, Beetlejuice was a very, very abrasive character and so he kind of came out and... Um, sort of metaphorically punched the audience in the face and was like, you're either with me or against me. And so it was kind of divisive in Washington, D.C. But we, what, you, what happens out of, um, out of town 
is, you know, you don't just kind of rely on your own eyes and ears and the, and the reception of the audience. They do a lot of back-end data collection. They they do exit interviews with audiences. They take graphs of, you know, rec- 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 like song recognition. I had this amazing graph that kind of like charted the, the songs that people kind of liked most to least. Uh, and uh, that was hilarious. Um, I, I wish I still had that because it was um, it was pretty brutal. And, um, you know, like you get a mountain of data about what people thought. And, you know, there was a lot of things that popped up about that, like, you know, or, you know, like it was pretty offensive and it was pretty crass and it was pretty, you know, bleak and pretty dark. And, um, you know, we were like, this is tricky because this is sort of what we're aiming for. We're aiming to have a night in the theatre that gave people, um, that took a taboo like death and dying and grief and just really lent right into it. And we didn't want to, you know, not do that because that was the heart and soul of our piece. So there were like two things that happened in the, the rewrite from Washington, D.C. to Broadway. One of the big ones, were like the writers, the two writers, Scott Brown and Anthony King, they're like killing themselves. You know, Lydia comes out, she sings her song Invisible, and then Beetlejuice is sort of hidden under a schmata and then sort of is revealed reading um, a newspaper and then he says some witty line and, um, uh, and then the whole being dead thing starts. Now, that witty line had so many iterations. You know, in DC, it was like, you know, um, it was, I mean, there were so many. It was like life, life is like Cirque du Soleil. It, it goes too long. It's confusing. Um, <laughs> but they let you, they let you fiddle with the, they let you molest the puppets or something. Uh, and then it was like, hey, folks. And like none of them were working. It was like the worst of the cold opening. You know, like you just had this one joke and then we had to get into it. Like, what is, what is it? And the guys eventually were like, you know, um, wrote for Broadway. Wow, ballad already. Um, and such um, uh, such a radical departure from the original source material, which was kind of like so obvious. that you, We got to the point where we're like, can we just say what we're doing? Can we say that it's a show about death? so that we get that out of the way. Can we say that this is a depart- radical departure from the source material or a bold departure from the source material? And then I um, wrote a, you know, many new, new lyrics for the opening number on Broadway, but one of them was, um, yeah, I know you're woke, but you can take a joke here. And literally all it was, was Beetlejuice giving the audience permission to laugh because we felt like there was this little pause in DC where it was like, Oh, that's funny, but that's dark. And am I allowed to laugh? And people just kind of outworked themselves about, you know, worrying whether they were, you know, if they were laughing, they were punching down. Um, and that little gap, that little hesitation was just, it's just sort of death for comedy. And so we knew that the opening number had to be about giving an audience permission to laugh, the thing that we all fear and the most, and we're all weird about, and that's death. We're all going to die. How do we tell everyone you're going to die? This is a show about death. And we're like, well, let's do the, you know, the Jerome Robbins, you know, um, Fiddler on the Roof thing where they were like, you know, what are we going to call the opening number? And they're like, what's it about? It's about tradition. We're like, yes, death. It's a show about death. Let's stick that in there. So we did. And it worked a treat. Brilliant. Brilliant. And what a what a solution to that that problem of, you know, bl- black comedy. And, and people are concerned about, can I laugh at this? But yeah, give them permission. I also think that, you know, um, Beetlejuice doing a massive line of cocaine off his sleeve in the opening number helped a lot. People were like, oh, okay, 
I know where we are. I, <laughs> okay, I, I get it. I get what's. I get where we're going with this. This is intense. And this is great. And that was like that got them on board. Eddie, let's return to Broadway a little bit later in the conversation. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Are you a Melbourne boy originally? Yeah, yeah. I'm a Melbourne born and bred. Um, yeah. And as a child, um, what did your play consist of? Were you were you creative? Did you were you an explorer? Were you curious? Um, I think I was like, um, I was always creative. Um, I mean, I don't really know. I think I was pretty quiet. Um, I was into, um, I really liked music. And so I played music and I sang in choirs and I did music as a hobby a lot. Um, I, I liked, I liked drama, but I especially liked visual arts. So I wanted to be, that was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a visual artist. So I spent a lot of time, you know, drawing and painting and, um, um, you know, had a, my first job was a paper boy, as a paper boy, um, which I think, you know, is pretty cool. I think, was, I think I was one of the last of the kids that actually get on their bike and deliver papers at 5.30 a.m. every morning. But, I mean, that was, um, that was a really kind of like quite a shitty job for a 12, almost 12 when I did that. And I'd get up at five and I'd ride my bike to the news agents and I'd deliver papers and then, you know, rain, hail or shine. Very little shine at 5.30, I've got to tell you. I got attacked by dogs and things like that. Um, but it was also interesting, you know. Um, was that so I've always it, been pretty independent. Putting it in the mailbox or were you aiming for the front door to go whack or the window? Um, oh, a bit of both. It depended on the weather. You know, it was before the days of, I mean, I remember rolling rolling them up in kind of plastic with those big machines started coming a little later. But um, usually, you know, I'd have an apple box on my pack rack that was, held down with um hockey straps jesus christ and this is taking me back and i just roll it was like the age was great because it was really you know the age and the herald sun were good to roll but saturdays suck because you know you had the age you had the lift out and it was huge and you couldn't get elastic band around it and then you know if you <laughs> it and you threw it on some lawn and then it happened to rain later on in the morning and they'll be like why would you leave it out in the rain all that kind of shit um but it was also you know it meant that i um was sort of I, you know, I had my own money coming in. I mean, I wasn't, believe it or not, um, this was 1990 and I wasn't rolling. I made $25 cash a week. Um, but that was, I've always had, you know, jobs and I've always had sort of financial independence. And I, and I think that, that was good for getting a bit of a, a work ethic. But, but Mento in the suburb I grew up in was really fucking boring and nothing happened and it was very nice. It was a lovely job. I'm not complaining, but it was like, I always had this, you know, it was, it was slightly, um, slightly monocultural, you know, footy in the winter, cricket in the summer, um, you know, people, you know, it, we, you, you went to the, um, the careers counselor's office at St. Bede's school I went to, uh, which is an all boys Catholic school. Oh yeah. There was, there was Jesus in there. That was fun. Um, and everybody came out of the counselor's office being told no matter what, they told the, the careers person, they all came out being told they should be an engineer. I didn't even know what the hell an engineer was. But uh, there was a lot of like, oh, I guess I'll go to uni and be an engineer. I didn't do that. I did really well at school because I didn't really, you know, have much of a life outside of it. And I just kind of put my head down and worked really hard. And I got really good marks, marks that I've never really used. But um, it was nice, I guess. And 
Um, so I've always been studious and always been good at school and, um, but I couldn't wait to kind of get out there, get out of there and out of Minton and find my own sort of people, you know, and I, and that happened when I went to art school, you know, people with like long hair and multiple piercings and crazy clothes who lived in share houses in Carlton and Brunswick and, you know, you know, sometimes we go to the pub in the day and get really drunk drinking beer in the day or, you know, like you'd go to a pub and people would be playing like hacky sack in the beer garden and people would bring their dogs or house parties. And I was like, this is a, ama- you know, it was very, what I thought very bohemian. Um, but now I mean, it's just like just being, being in your twenties in, um, in the in the north of Melbourne. But it was a big deal for me to get out of, you know, one place where I felt, you know like i hadn't really found my people and to get into the you know into the inner north and experience that kind of culture and you know start thinking about what it meant to be an artist and you know get your own place and pay rent and you know all that shit be poor be really broke for a while that was good yeah find your tribe yeah find your tribe so when did uh, you commence piano lessons how old were you I got sent to piano lessons when I was five and then I quit when I was six and that's it for me in piano lessons. <laughs> oh, really? Was you didn't gel with the teacher or? No, she just worked out in my, in my second year of study that um, I wasn't reading the notes. So she would basically, I think from memory, I mean, it's a long time ago. Um, she would put a, you know, a piano piece in front of me. And she'd go, this is um, whatever menuet and G. And then she would play it. And then I'd go, huh. And then I would play it. And then at some point she worked out that I was playing from ear. I was listening to her play it and I was just sort of repeating that back. Um, and so, you know, like, you know, in a way that sort of kind of blows my mind now that I think about it, instead of going, wow, this kid's got good ears, she just she just refused to play new piano pieces for me and just made me read the dots and then everything slowed down. And then I stopped feeling like I was making music and then it became a chore and I didn't really know what I was playing and I I wasn't really doing anything to actively improve my sight reading except sort of being forced to sort of slowly and badly read it. So it was sort of like a a double, a kind of a lose-lose situation where you know, I wasn't enjoying my lessons. I wasn't playing music anymore. And I wasn't, I wasn't really getting any better at sight reading because I just started to sort of um, hate those lessons. And I, um, I said to my dad, I want to, I want to quit. And he was like, okay. And I quit. And um, my uncle, my dad's brother, um, uncle Jim, uh, he's retired now, but he spent his entire life um, as a, piano bar pianist he he played um the piano and piano bars and um never had a lesson um just listened to the radio and sort of played what he heard and was one of those people that you know had an incredible set of ears but also um you know like a kind of an an astounding memory and was sort of a walking jukebox encyclopedia of music um you know you could ask him to play anything that was sort of of his era in his wheelhouse i mean you can't go i play me katie perry i mean listen to that but um you know like if you wanted to hear um 
um, Jerome Kern or Mahalia Jackson or Edith Piaf or Ella Fitzgerald or something by Gershwin or something even like some of the classics, you know, like you know, Shostakovich or Charles Aznavour or, um, you know, he, he'd be like, bang, play it. What key do you want it in? Easy. And I remember very clearly he said to me, uh, don't worry, don't worry about the lessons. Just listen to the radio and play what you hear. So that's what I that's what I did. And I just played piano. Um, I think what really got me back into it was I learned um, a, a guitar when I was I learned guitar when I was in high school because it was the '90s and because you know it was the era of grunge. You know, like Nirvana and Soundgarden and even like you know um, Metallica and uh, Rage Against the Machine. But I was also really into like Jimi Hendrix and Dire Straits, like Mark Knopfler and, um, you know, Pantera and Metallica and Thrasher and all this sort of like Guns N' Roses, all this sort of rock bands. Um, and I just listened to them and sort of played along to that. And, you know, guitar is taught in a very different way because guitar, especially, you know, electric guitar, um, it isn't, you know, in inverted commas, a classical instrument. People didn't have the same kind of weird hang-ups and rules about how a kid should learn the guitar it was basically like you go to a lesson you want to play what you like right you want to what what music do you like you like red hot chili peppers all right well this is how you play suck my kiss and or you like foxy lady by Jimi hendrix this is how you play that and that's why there's like tablature with guitars you know it's designed to to create the shortest distance between you and making music and no one gives a shit whether you can like or, you know, is that an F sharp? Like, it's like, how do I play? You know what I mean? Yep, yep. How do I play this music? And, you know, chords are about shapes. The shape your hand makes on the fretboard, that's a G. You know, you move, you know, you take your your middle finger off that and then op- open string. Now that's an E minor. You know, you're learning those shapes and then you can move them up and down. And once you start being able to play chords, you can start playing songs. And then once you start being able to play songs, you can start writing songs. All those things happen in a way much more fluidly but with piano it was like no you need to learn you need to play your scales you need to play these piano pieces no one's going to teach you that this is a c major seven chord or this is a g7 chord no, no one teaches you that stuff they don't and i think it's really i mean i do now i'm sure that i'm i'd be amazed if they didn't but um that is what that knowledge of chords and of just you know playing what you hear and making sounds and being inside and experimenting that was so encouraged in the learning of the guitar. Um, I just took it back to the piano. That's how I taught myself to play the piano. And then I, I learned to write songs just because I listened to lots of different stuff and I just started being better at being able to put down what I heard in my head. And you're building up this vast knowledge of repertoire also of styles and genres which are going to inform your composition, composition work. Absolutely. I mean, I sang in a, I sang in a soul band. I um, sang in an a cappella swing group. I sang with the Melbourne Chorale. I'm doing like you know um, Beethoven's Mrs. Solemnis and uh, Carmina Burana and lots of big symphonic choral works, um, including kind of amazing contemporary stuff. I sang with a South African um, singer songwriter, Valanga Koza. We did like. Um, kind of stuff in a traditional South African acapella music with like, you know, um, with like djembe players and, all, you know, all sorts of different um, instrumentalists all over Australia in world music festivals, you know, um, 
playing a bit of jazz here, playing a bit of, um, you know, funk or rock or blues, you know, whatever. Um, uh, and I love, I love that, you know, playing reggae, playing dub, playing, um, you know, all sorts of stuff that, that all goes into the pot um, and is all very, very useful as a composer because um, probably the reason why I gravitated towards um, writing for theatre because I, also because, you know, I find the combination of storytelling and, and music can endlessly fascinating, but also because musical theatre isn't a, isn't a style. It's an umbrella under which literally any musical style um, can exist. And I really love all kinds of music. And I think that, you know, they have a deeply embedded um, uh, kind of um, cultural trigger in an audience. People know what it feels like to listen to, you know, a beautiful um, begin or a samba. People um, know what it feels like to listen to up-tempo rock or, you know, to kind of like Russian choral music. You know, it all has a different effect and we all have a lifetime of experience of those musical styles that when it comes to eliciting a certain response or emotion or creating a kind of a palette that you want to use in a theatrical context, um, you can use those to spark a response in audiences. You can use it also to have a lyric that works against that or with it or that uses multiple styles, you know, like, like with Beetlejuice, I don't remember uses, you know, 15 different musical genres in the one thing because I wanted to communicate that Beetlejuice was, a, was um, you know, not just one person, but a vessel for multiple voices that spill out and come over top of each other and you needed to be surprising, confusing and sometimes seductive and sometimes forceful and, and sometimes funny and, you know, like all of those different, he needed to be all those different things in one and that's why I use so many different styles. Well, there's R&B and rap and he's a lounge singer at one moment and heavy metal. and Yeah. Yeah, all there, yeah. all there, yeah. So what about musical theatre? How did, did that feature in your childhood as an audience member or even with cast recordings at home? I mean, everyone seemed to have a copy of My Fair Lady. Well, we didn't. And I came to My Fair Lady very, very late. In fact, My Fair Lady is still a hole in my musical theatre knowledge. I mean, I know the, you know, I know the hits. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't an album we had at home. I can tell you exactly what I'm talking I mean, um, the very the two first musicals that had a massive impact on me, and I feel like they might have been the first two musicals I ever heard. Um, my dad had um, dubbed down onto cassette and put into the combi van that we used to go on. You know, my parents are school teachers, so we had all the school holidays and we'd go camping and long road trips in the combi van. He um, recorded off the radio um, the George Hearn, Angela Lansbury production of Sweeney Todd that I think LA. Nice. LA Metropolitan Opera did. Um, that had a massive impact on me. I absolutely loved that. That was on two cassettes and we um, listened to that constantly. And then weirdly, the other one was um, Pirates of Penzance. They're two extremes. And, well, yeah, but I would say that I would say that I can I can recognise the influence of both Pirates of Penzance and Sweeney Todd in pretty much everything I've ever done. That's fantastic. I, I, I find, I, I was like, oh, I mentioned this in an interview the other day and I I was like, i got to go back and listen to Pirates of Penzance. I haven't listened to that for so long. And um, 
God, it made me laugh. It, it's like it's really clever writing. I mean, it's insanity, and the the you know the plot is absolutely ridiculous. But just the word, the way they just lean into lyrics and words and concepts and constructs and double meanings, and I, I love all of that stuff. But then there's also just pure comedy, and the music. Some of the music is so good. Like, um, uh, oh, is there not one maiden breast? That really made me like made me laugh out loud what a fucking terrible way you know <laughs> a shotgun scattergun approach that frederick has to just going you know like starting off with this very beautiful long first verse you know um you know if any of you i mean there's like how many maidens there's like heaps of them you've never seen one until today uh you know surely you one of you will have you know mercy on this poor sort of lonely kind of child and innocent and everyone's like no sorry <laughs> and then he like lowers his standards so far he's like ah oh, isn't there like surely there's someone amongst you that's like ugly and you're like you got no chance of getting married and then there's this great um when they all the maidens sing together and it's so passive aggressive i just like that is such brilliant um musical theater writing and it had a massive effect on me when i was a kid i was like holy shit, this is like, you know, it didn't feel like any, obviously it wasn't, didn't reflect what was happening in popular music, which I was into. Um, and it lived outside of that. And I, and I, and it was sort of ex extreme. It was heightened and I really enjoyed that. So that were the first two, but then I also remember the first, I mean, I remember the first time I listened to a lot of musicals, my dad's record collection, his vinyl collection, which still exists to this day in this, you know, um, he had um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, and I very clearly remember hearing Tradition for the first time and just being like, what is this sound and what is this music and these glorious kind of like counter melodies that all fit together like one. I mean, uh, that was that had a huge effect on me. Um, but then also, you know, he was, you know, I guess a bit of a, him and mum and like, um, you know, around in the 60s. So, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar was a big deal. Godspell was a big deal. Um, you know, there's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of Rodgers and Hammerstein, but not a huge amount. I sort of listened to more to like you know, Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, and then I um, I remember my parents getting a CD player, and I went down to Brashes. Um, and remember Brashes. Remember Brashes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul, Paul went out for Brashes. Um, and the first compact disc I ever bought with my own money was, um, company, Stephen Sondheim's company. Not bad. And I remember like, I mean, how old would I have been? Like 13, maybe 14 when I bought that. And I remember listening to it on my own, like on my own, just with my, you know, with headphones stuck into the CD player over and over and over again and i remembered listening not um obviously by then i knew every lyric of every single song and every single moment but i was like i start that i remember listening deeper into the recording and starting to to try and analyze what all the individual instruments were doing what jonathan tunic's um orchestrations were doing and how they worked and that became an an obsession to hear how all the different parts of the band were knitting together and I and I used to do that a lot that was one of the things that I found really satisfying about 
especially modern musicals, when recording techniques started to become more sophisticated, I become really obsessed with how orchestration and arrangement um, heightened and clarified the text or the or the ideas behind stuff. You know how instruments could could pivot and take you to another musical style, so you could go into a fantasy or a dream sequence, or you know um, how you could have abrupt stops and and you know, a lot of that was a part of what I loved about listening to cast recordings, just how all of these different brains were melding together to tell this story in the most artistically, creatively satisfying way. The the score is like an oral landscape, isn't it? And um, if you're directing, choreographing a show, there's all sorts of sounds within that score which can trigger what you block, what you, how, you, how you move a scene. Well, Compliments. what was amazing with... What with Broadway as well is that you know um, they're not just reacting to you know they they're creating alongside in in parallel. So you know what what was really cool about making Beetlejuice was you know um, that uh, Connor our um, choreographer he would do these choreography labs and sometimes I wouldn't you know he would be doing them to you know my songs obviously like demos of my songs but. Um, or to the you know to a, a repetiteur playing them on the piano, but he would also bring in a, a dance arranger whose entire job it is to you know orchestrate and arrange dance breaks within songs, and that wasn't a job I had to do, um, you know. And to be honest, once the song's written, you know I've got opinions on it, but like that's not really my. I'm not a dance arranger, and I love collaborating with a dance arranger because Connor would be like, okay. Um, you know, this is the story I want to tell in this dance break, you know, um, Beetlejuice is bringing multiple, he's cloning himself, he's bringing multiple people alive. And then in this moment, they're all like a football field, and they're all together, you know, like a footy team, they're all together. And then this person's going to run over here and now they're all going to hide. And now they're going to like, you know, juggle their own heads or whatever crazy idea he had. And he would like move and find the physical language for that. And sometimes he would have dancers in the room to work on that. And then he'd be the dance arranger and I want this, you know, the head flies off at this point and it flies through the air and it lands and it catches and then they're throwing it now and they're throwing it really fast and, you know, it's just hypothetical. And so the dance arranger is there going, right, you know, and everything is following this. So they're, they're creating it together. Um, and that is an amazing thing to see as well. It's not like, wow, someone's just given me an arbitrary piece of music with all these hits and moments and trills and falls and tempo changes and then i have to kind of retrofit the action to it they create the action and the music responds to it and i love i love that about the process it was super cool now would you take a look at me saints jumper number 23 i break shit out of I don't get near the ball too much In fact, I hardly get a touch So much for my bright, shiny moment I'm having trouble trying to keep up with my men And in the coach box, Gary Collings going mental in the stands He's screaming, run, put your head down, Shane, and run Pull your finger out and run Or you're never gonna You meant to towards the fence You'll be straight back on the bench Boy, you never 
shows you give birth to your first musical Shane Warne the musical can any yeah. story be given a musical treatment do you think what, what was special about the Shane Warne story that that ignited your uh, passion to, to write that musical well a few things at that point in time I was um, I was interested in doing something that nobody had done before that would seem like a kind of an, an insane idea that was important to me that um, you know, people would go, Shane Warne, the musical, wow, that is like either the best idea or the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Um, that I had a bit of, you know, I had a healthy dose of kind of like, you know, fuck you, I guess, you know. Um, I'm going to do this crazy thing that, you know, no one else would write a musical about Shane Warne. But it wasn't just because it was a perverse idea. I mean, I truly did um, believe that it had everything. It was, it was already operatic, you know. You've got this guy who represents everything that people in Australia are proud and sort of embarrassed by. He's divisive. He's an incredibly great sportsman, but he has quite a tragic um, private life. Um, it's got success. It's got failure. It's got incredible um, comebacks. It's got um, love. It's got loss. It's got romance. Um, it's got scandal. You know, it's it's got all the big stuff. You know, it wasn't like I was like, oh god, what am I gonna? How am I gonna? How am I gonna fill this bloody ten minutes? It was like, what do I leave out? Because there is so much stuff. And um, I enjoyed. I really enjoyed writing that. Um, I was very um, green in that I didn't, I didn't quite have the uh, analytical brain to understand what I what I was doing. But a lot of the stuff that I was doing on instinct um, was really working because what what I was instinctively doing, um, even though I sort of sur ended up being surrounded by an army of lawyers um, because no one wanted to get sued by Shane Warne. Um, what I was sort of instinctively doing was taking his version of events. He'd written about four autobiographies by that stage, taking his version of events and just kind of like exploding them out into insane sort of musical theatre fantasy. Um, and I had no issues musicalising that stuff, although I was a much slower and less efficient writer at the time. And I wrote it in an absolute vacuum. I wrote the music and the lyrics and then I wrote the book for it. And then, um, you know, I put together the band and I um, orchestrated and arranged for the band. And then, you know, I was in it. So it was like this kind of crazy um, vacuum to be in. And I think it would have 
the piece would have benefited largely and you know my sanity would have benefited largely from having people to collaborate with but i tried with i tried with Shane on the musical i tried with a couple of different book writers and um you know i had lots of meetings but i couldn't get anyone to write anything and i was like ah this is slowing me down i'm just gonna go for it um and so that was an an incredible process where life was sort of turned up to 11 and it was very stressful and um you know uh, a lot of eggs in one basket um because you were playing the lead as well uh, and yeah i was playing the lead as well it was insane it was absolutely insane i mean everything was being invented from the ground up um but it was you know it was it had a huge impact and it was an incredible experience and i learned a huge amount um you know, from the things that went well, but probably even more so from the things that um, didn't. That was my first experience of um, uh, of like really, really big failure when that show closed in Sydney, and how you know things can move against you, and how um, how you know much um, uh, kind of luck is uh, you know a little bit of luck is um, important. You know, hard work is one thing. Um, dedication is and persistence or, or another, but also, you know, you do need a little bit of luck and, um, uh, yeah, that when that show ended, I mean, it kind of closed early in Sydney and it was, it was shocking, man, really bad season in, in Perth. And then Sydney just sort of like was, was just fucked. And, um, um, you know, that was my first experience of like, okay, well, you know, I put all of my eggs into this basket. I spent three years writing it, which was the longest I'd spent writing anything by that point. Um, it, this is sort of my thing. You know, I, I had made myself completely broke doing it uh, and, I, and I didn't make any money out of it. And not only that, it's closed early and it just ended. And um, that was really hard, but it was also instructive because I was like, Oh yeah, I get it. This sucks, but the sun still comes up, and people still move around, and life kind of goes on. And and um, I think I've had a pretty healthy relationship with failure ever since then. And the only things that you know, if I can use the word trigger, um, the only things that like kind of get under my skin now when it comes to um, failure is when I see other people enjoy it. That pisses me off and there's a lot of that on broadway but there's a lot of that everywhere um there are just people that really revel in other people's failure but you know a little bit of we can go back to my catholic upbringing you know forgive them father for they know not what they do it's <laughs> you can only do that if you've never made something if you've never made something then yeah you probably are going to revel in somebody failing because it's like oh see um that's what you get for taking <laughs> you know for taking a risk i always believe it's much more about the individual so you know i think that stood me in good stead i'm pretty robust no one likes to fail but um it's happened to me a hell of a lot and you know you bounce back and you you learn from it you know and i i think that um as long as you're on the podium you know you don't have to be on the on the middle middle section of the dais holding them the gold medal you know bronze is bronze is okay as long as you kind of keep you still in the game and you can write the next thing um and everybody i love and everybody i admire has had a pretty hideous failure 
Well, let's have a listen to a number from uh, Shane Warne, the musical, the Australian cast recording. This is, I was attracted to this immediately. It's a lyric that W.S. Gilbert would be very proud of, I'm sure. Uh, what an SM mess I'm in. That's genius, Eddie. Um, it's performed well, by... No one... <laughs> no one... People probably don't know what that means anymore. It's dated <laughs> badly, that one. What's an SMS? And it used to cost like 58 cents, wasn't it? So this one features yourself, Amy Limpara, Verity Hunt-Ballard and Christy Whelan-Brown. What an SMS I'm in. Oh, now we've been invited to a third birthday party on Sunday from Shelley Callum's mum. You don't know her. She's just one of the mums from childcare. Now, it's not, it's not a big commitment. It's Sunday for about three hours or so. Now, the invitation says the theme is pirates and ninjas, but I thought that ninjas would be easiest. I mean, it's just all black with a gap in the eyes. Trying my best to be sweet and domestic I'm doing the good husband thing Trying to act stable while reading a label But the SMSs keep flooding in Simone doesn't notice she's focused on groceries Squeezing a small mandarin So I sneak a peek and my knees they go weak What an SMS I'm in it's nothing physical, it's strictly digital So I'm not cheating like most other guys Now when a girl presses sin, I believe in the end It's simple, I know to reply I've got an erection in the frozen food section Simone's patient's now wearing thin Swapping numbers with scrumpers in clubs, but now what an SMS I'm in. Shane? Shane? Sorry? Which one? Oh, I don't mind. Well, there is the regular domestic one, or there is the more exotic foreign one. Ugh, you choose. No, you have to choose. All right, well, I'll have both then. You can't have both of them, silly. Why not? Why can't I have everything? Come on, you can't have everything. Regular or imported? Regular or, or imported. imported? Regular or, or imported? I don't know, I can't choose, it's too hard. Honey, thinking about you just makes me horny. Playing with myself, don't ignore me, baby. I'm soaking wet. Safer sex that you'll ever get. Aren't I at least worth 33 cents? You can push right now. Wanna fuck you now? What? Uh.
rhyme seems integral to the successful lyricist. Are you a bit of a wordsmith? How do you build your lexicon and your your knowledge of words? Do you have it? Do you write with the dictionary, a thesaurus? Um, no, someone gave me a thesaurus, but I found it hard to use. But I do use um, I do use um, Google to um, Google rhymes for things every now and then. But I, you know, I was I was brought up on um, on some pretty great um, poetry and verse. My dad, uh, in amongst other things, and it was a humanities and English lit teacher and introduced us to a lot of poetry. So I um, obviously grew up with, you know, Roald Dahl, but also like um, the poems of Ogden Nash and my favourite, you know, um, Spike Milligan, you know, Absurdity, all that sort of stuff. My favourite stuff was always when a word was sort of bowdlerized to, to fit a rhyme in a satisfying way that that always, like, you know, um, what was it, the... The, the Wobegong, is that the Ogden Nash poem? Uh, yep. Someone's listening to it, it's going to get really angry. But um, it was a great couplet, which was um, last night seen in Canada, tonight on your veranda. And I was like, that's genius. So I'm always looking for that. I'm always looking for that kind of rhyme. Um, and yeah, I, I you know, I, a lot of it just happens sort of instinctively. Um, but you know, I'm all, I'm always on a quest for um, uh, su- surprise and interesting imagery and um, uh, uh, interesting sort of phrasing to be able, be able to vary that. Um, yeah, there are there are like you know obviously like kind of guidelines or rules you know about where the you know not not having um, a rhyme land on an on an unstressed part, syllable of a word, all those sorts of things that you kind of start to do instinctively after a while because you know you want to hear it and you want to make sense of it and you've got like one shot with an audience um who were in the house that night but also you know i think it's fun to bend bend the rules i listen to a lot of um a lot of hip-hop and contemporary music and sometimes um they find super smart ways to rhyme things that don't necessarily rhyme and i mean i've had um arguments with all sorts of people all sorts of um, music theatre purists who are like, it has to be perfect rhymes. And like, yeah, of course, perfect rhymes are good. They're great. Everyone's aiming for perfect rhymes. and But I don't necessarily think that imperfect rhymes are like the sin that people make them out to be. And I'll tell you, this I never said this out loud before. So I think that the people, look, you know, in a creative world, when you're assessing something, um, it's all about subjectivity, right? I like this. I don't like this. This melody resonates with me. It doesn't resonate with me. That imagery works. It doesn't. Style, taste, all those things that have to mesh for you to like something, they're very kind of like shades of grey. One person's, you know, absolute favourite melody could be another person's dirge. You know, that's the way the creative arts go. There is only one tangible thing that you can go, this is a perfect rhyme or an imperfect rhyme. That is the one thing we can go that is either right or wrong. And so when people pull out their, this is not a perfect Ryan handbook, I'm like, ah, that person's boring because they've found the one thing that isn't an objective, isn't like subjectivity. And they've gone, oh, you've broken a rule. And I'm like, fuck off, fuck off. I just don't have time for that at all. So that's my opinion on that. And this is where you're going to go, oh, 
I only like perfect rhymes. It's fine. I love perfect rhymes too. Everyone loves perfect rhyme. But there's also like, yeah, I also like to get, I don't think you can get away with stuff. I think, you know, there's, um, there's cleverness in, there's cleverness in the imperfect rhyme. I think you got to look at the bigger picture too. Like I think, especially when it comes to comedy, um, yeah, nothing worse than a shit song with perfect rhymes where you're like, oh God, I can see that one coming. Yeah. So yeah, that's my, that's my opinion. I think you've justified that very well. Um, Oscar Hammerstein, when he was tutoring the young Stephen Sondheim <laughs> in, uh, in musical was, theatre. My writing. argument was essentially, my, my argument was essentially just fuck off though, which I yeah. like. Um, no, it's <laughs> FOT, fuck sorry, off. You, no. Sorry, you were moving. Oh, I was moving, moving, moving it along. Oh, All right, Oscar on. Hammerstein, when he was tutoring the younger Stephen Sondheim, gave him the advice, uh, you know, in writing musicals to write for a specific star or, or talent. Um, with Beetlejuice, are you writing for the actors that you know or, or you're writing more for characters? I mean, obviously, Alex Brightman is a particular talent. Um, he'd come off um, the Lloyd Webber School of Rock. Um, so you know what he can do. Are you using that knowledge to to give him sort of vocal acrobatics and range and well, character? It was interesting because I wrote, you know, I wrote most of, you know, wrote most of Beetlejuice and then we had to cast it and I would sit in these casting meetings not knowing who anyone was talking about. I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know any of these people. So I'm just going to have to like, you know, take your word for it. Um, so often the first time I knew who the actor was was when I they turned up in the room and they sang. And, um, you know, we had a, you know, we had different Lydia's, we had a different Beetlejuice in the beginning, you know, and then I remember Brightman coming along and, you know, obviously loved, loved Brightman straight away because he got a, an amazing um, inventive comic mind and sort of absolutely fearless and he's he's quite dark. Um, but yes, so I didn't know when I was writing the material, but then once Alex was on board, I was like, every time I'd write stuff, I'd be like, Alex is going to kill this. Alex will make this work. Alex will, will knock this one out of the park. Alex will take this and he'll plus it in a really interesting way. So yeah, you do start to know what other people can do. Now, I'm, I got a much lower singing voice than Alex Brightman. It was singing like A's and B flats in School of Rock. So when he came to doing my songs uh, for Beetlejuice, I was like, what do you want to do? You want to transpose these up? He was like, no, I want to keep them in your key. And I'm just going to, because I want to be able to do this voice. And if I'm doing the voice and I'm sticking it at the extreme end of my range, I'm going to wear myself out. I'm not going to be able to do eight shows a week. But if I keep it in your range, where nothing kind of goes higher than like an F or an F sharp, I can do that eight shows a week, no worries. So that was great. Um, and yeah, you once you start to know your actors, it's terrific writing for them. Um, but yeah, I never went in going. I mean, it's tricky. You, I'd be, re- I'd be really scared um, going into writing something. You always have a, a few different actors or, or types in your head. But if you like, you know. Um, I'm writing something and it absolutely has to be Kerry Butler in the lead role. It should be perfect for it. Then when Kerry's not available or she's not interested or, you know, or they can't, <laughs> they can't find the money for Kerry Butler, then, you know, you're going to have to um, move on to somebody else. And um, 
that's a kind of a potentially really depressing way to start a process with someone that's not who you wanted. Well, you've released a, a fantastic new album, Demos, 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 which are all the demos that you that you wrote and submitted for inclusion in the show. Let's before we actually yeah. talk about that, go back to the way you got the gig because you uh, you auditioned for them free of charge, didn't you? You offered your services in a way. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know you would anyone would pay you to pitch on a show. So I um I'd been going to New York every few months i'd gotten an agent by that point i heard that beetlejuice was looking for a composer lyricist i asked if i could be a part of the pitch process my agent asked the creative team and the producers of beetlejuice and they said no we don't we've got it out to pitch to enough people we don't want to widen the pitch we don't really know who this writer is um all of his kind of um all of his music is very australian so I look, and then my agent was like, yeah, look, I think this is just a pass on this one. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll find something else for you to pitch on. Um, and I was like, well, what if I just wrote two songs free, you know, and, and I won't take up any of their time and I won't, won't cost them any money. And, and my agent was genuinely surprised that I would do this. He's like, oh my God, you do that. And I was like, dude, you no idea what I would do to get my foot in the door. And so we went back and asked them and they were like, oh, okay. And they let me pitch and they sent me the script and they, um, you know, I got on a call with um, Alex Timbers, the director, and um, uh, Scott and Anthony, the writers, and they talked to me about, you know, what their ideas were, what where they thought the script was going, what they thought, um, you know, what they thought it would potentially sound like and all their ideas. And they were like, can you write a song for the character of Beetlejuice and a song for the character of Lydia? Um, and then Alex Timbers said something that was really smart. He said to me, look, I know you're probably used to just sort of writing stuff and then sending it off and it's done. He said, but I would highly encourage you to involve the two book writers in the creation of the songs. So, you know, even if you've got like a verse and a chorus, send it over to them, get their thoughts on it. You know, they might have some input, you know, work with them. And um, because if you can't, collaborate with those guys if it's not enjoyable there's no point doing this musical and i was like oh okay i never sent an unfinished song to anyone but i i wrote a verse and chorus of dead mom and i sent it to them and they were like oh cool well maybe this could happen or maybe this you should go here next and we kick ideas around and i went i was like okay cool and um you know same with the whole being dead thing um, and we just started a rapport of like throwing ideas into the pot and then also like making each other laugh and like, this is funny. And that's a really funny idea. I want to try and use that. And, and so, I mean, I knew I was just one of many people pitching on it, but I was also really enjoying writing with those guys. Um, and so, you know, it was a surprise to me when I got the gig, but we sort of hit the ground running. And I mean, they were very encouraging that to Scott and Anthony, the book writers, you know, they just they loved working with me and I loved working with them and we went through our ups and downs that's for sure but um you know that collaboration was there from the start and you don't even realize that you know it's you know it's about the kind of spark and I thought well these guys are very nice I'm sure they're sparking with everybody um but I didn't know they were particularly sparking with me and that had a big impact on me getting the job 
Well, we hear about those uh, musical, uh, those great songs from great musicals that have been cut on the road or, or didn't make the, the cut into the final show. So it's terrific to have a whole host of them on, on this new album. Do you have a favourite song that, that didn't make the cut? You've got a weird head. Your stench is distressing. I may be dead, but you're just depressing. Oh, yeah. Well, you look like a statue that's been crapped on by birds. Yeah, well, you look like one of Dracula's turrets. You make me sad. You've got terrible breath. No. You look like a clown that's found crystal meth. Not enough smarts. Not enough spunk. Hey, maybe I'm nuts. Maybe I'm drunk. But it's kind of awesome that we met. And you can only work with what you get. Um, yeah, I, I have a couple. Um, the, the swing duet between Beetlejuice and Lydia, you can only work with what you get. I was very sad when that didn't make the cut. Um, because I just thought from a visual perspective, I mean, it was, it was, it was like, it was exactly their relationship. They are working together because they both want the same thing, but they are very different from each other. And they don't necessarily trust or like or respect each other, but you know, they're like a they're like a bad duet. Um, so writing, you know, a kind of a me and my shadow, um, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra type swing ballad about how, you know, oh well, you know, um, I guess you gotta you know only work with what you get. It was just immediately fun and funny. I and mean, when you set up a kind of a, um, a framework and a song and you just get obsessed with it and you can't stop finding lyrics for it and it just haunts you all day, all, all day long when you're like, oh, it could be about this. You know, what are things that don't go together that, um, that go together? Uh, what are, you know, dangerous things, you know? And I really enjoyed that and I thought it would be great visually too, you know, to kind of go somewhere really different, top hat and canes. Um, but in the end, it was cut. For some reason, I can't even bloody remember. But um, that was one. The other one that I really liked, but we cut it because it was just like there was just no room for a song and we wanted to keep the plot and the show, you know, on the rails and, and steaming forward in the second act was a song for, um, for Otho, which is called I'm Very Good at Running Cults. My first cult, it was crazy, started in the 1980s, just a bunch of local ladies and wah. We took acid every day, we had like 67 babies, yeah, and all of them conceived in the spot to start a new religion. It takes a million small decisions. Who's gonna do the grocery run? Who's gonna strip and clean the guns? Who's gonna purchase all the beds? Who's gonna look out for the fence? Had a never growing Die. Oh, I survived. You want to know why? Because I am very good at running cults. Uh. Really enjoyable to write and really enjoyable to see in the room and utterly ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so that was a bit of a bummer. But they were all, there was something going for all of them. Um, my, my favorite some of them, is, I'm like, mm, sorry, what's your my, favorite? My favorite is the children we didn't have. I think that's beautiful. Right. Well, we did that. That went through the whole season in Washington, D.C. And it was, um, and, you know, Kerry Butler sang the shit out of it. It was absolutely beautiful, really moving. But we'd also, like, leaned quite heavily on the fact that um, 
that the Maitlands had tried to had have kids but it hadn't worked, or they'd you know they'd had I mean they had like a miscarriage, and that was a big part of why they were sort of unwilling to take the next step. And then of course you know Lydia represented this sort of you know person that they could you know be have a custodial relationship. They could help this girl. You know we're not going to be parents. We can help this girl. And yeah, it was moving, but it was also like you know. It was also a bit of a, a bummer. Um, and I think ultimately the reason why I replaced it with Barbara 2.0 was because um, it wasn't surprising enough. We wanted the maintenance to really transform, you know, and I was like, what's the energy of them? I, I was watching the show one night and um, they have a reprise of Ready, Set where, where Kerry Butler as Barbara Maitland goes, let's haunt this bitch. And the surprise of that language coming out of, you know, Kerry Butler as Barbara Maitland just had such an explosive impact on the audience. And I was like, that's that's what they love. It's when this really tame, timid, scared person is like, let's haunt this bitch, just goes there. And I was like, I think that's what I want Barbara 2.0 to be, you know, to be this big transformation song. So, of course, Kerry Butler was pretty pissed off with me because she really liked the children we didn't have. She sang it beautifully. It was a tear-jerking moment. And here I was taking it away from her. But she was very good about embracing Barbara 2.0. So it's because she's a champ. The children we didn't have don't call their heights aren't marked with pencil on the wall They don't ride bikes, cry out at night Or fall and graze a knee And their arms will never reach For the mother I never got to be Children, we didn't have press in Remind me that we couldn't just begin They laugh on swings, they whisper things I'm not supposed to know And they'll never stop to see The mother that never was, that's me. Think about all the children we didn't have. Picture them playing in the light. Think of them deep in thought. Think of their face when they're caught doing something naughty. Picture them three or four Picture them walking out the door Think of them twenty or thirty or forty Now picture a teen I think you know who I mean The daughter we didn't have moved in Smart and sad Uneasy in her skin 
far too young to lose a mom or take the path she's traveling on if I could whisper in her ear I tell the daughter we didn't have I'm And that's showbiz. Eddie, thank you so much for cool. your, your time. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your time. Um, and all the very best for, for the future. We can't wait to hear what, uh, what you're going to write next. Well, thank you very much. There's more, there's more to come. And yeah, I've got, got a couple of American musicals that I'm writing. One's going to be like a Christmas musical. And one's going to be like a proper dark dark comedy about murder because a lot of people are going to die in, in that one and i'm very excited to write that but yeah i want to write something in australia too but i'm not sure what i'm not sure what yet i've got a couple of american ideas but i think i'll start in australia one pretty soon terrific thank you all the best cheers peter have a good one mate and that was my chat with eddie perfect what a brilliant mind and appreciation for the musical theater form in addition to the original Broadway cast recording of Beetlejuice, another album has recently been released, titled Demos, 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 which features both alternate opening and closing numbers that never made it to Broadway, and preliminary versions of the now popular songs that made the original cast recording the highest streamed Broadway album of the 2018-2019 season. The songs are all performed by Perfect, he made the demos toiling away in his studio in Melbourne and thought it might be interesting to fans of Beetlejuice to see how the songs came to be and how they developed the characters over time. Another great insight into the making of a musical. Beetlejuice is currently available through all streaming partners on CD and on vinyl. The cast album and demos, demos, demos are both available from ghostlightrecords.com. You've been listening to episode 186 of The Stages podcast with actor, writer and Broadway composer, Eddie Perfect. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm. I'll catch you next time.